Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. Reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Jesus came to the Samaritan town called Sishar, near the land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well is there, and Jesus, tired by the journey, sat straight down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, What? You are a Jew, and you ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Jews, in fact, do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus replied, If you only knew what God is offering, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have been the one to ask, and he would have given you living water. You have no bucket, sir, she answered, and the well is deep. How could you get this living water? Are you a greater man than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself with his sons and his cattle? Jesus replied, Whoever drinks this water will get thirsty again. But anyone who drinks the water that I shall give will never be thirsty again. The water that I shall give will turn into a spring inside him, welling up to eternal life. Sir, said the woman, give me some of that water so that I may never get thirsty and never have to come here again to draw water. Go and call your husband, said Jesus to her, and come back here. The woman answered, I have no husband. He said to her, You are right to say, I have no husband, for although you have had five, the one you have now is not your husband. You spoke the truth here. I see you are a prophet, sir, said the woman. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, while you say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation comes from the Jews. But the hour will come, in fact it is here already, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That is the kind of worshippers the Father wants. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, that is Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us everything. I, who am speaking to you, said Jesus, I am he. At this point his disciples returned and were surprised to find him speaking to a woman, though none of them asked, What do you want from her? 
or why are you talking to her? The woman put down her water jar and hurried back to town to tell people, come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. I wonder if he's the Christ. This brought people out of the town and they started walking towards him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, do have something to eat. But he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples asked one another, Has someone been bringing him food? But Jesus said, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. Have you not got a saying, four months and then the harvest? Well, I tell you, look around you, look at the fields. Already they are white, ready for the harvest. Already the reaper is being paid his wages. Already he is bringing in the grain for eternal life. And thus sower and reaper rejoice together. For here the proverb holds good, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap a harvest you have not worked for. Others worked for it, and you have come into the rewards of their trouble. Many Samaritans of that town had believed in him on the strength of the woman's testimony when she said, He told me all I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came up to him, they begged him to stay with them. He stayed for two days, and when he spoke to them, many more came to believe. And they said to the woman, Now we no longer believe because of what you told us. We have heard him ourselves, and we know that he really is the saviour of the world. So that's probably one of the longest pieces of gospel that we can hear during the liturgical year. And it really is wonderful that the church gives us this dialogue and the consequence of the dialogue in its entirety for Lent. Uh, however, of course, there are possibilities to cut it short. But the whole movement of Jesus being alone by the well, meeting the woman, and then the woman goes, the disciples come, and then the, all the Samaritans, the whole town. So you have Jesus starting completely alone in that desertic place, because the well would have been about a mile or one and a half kilometer from the town of Sichem, if it is Sichem, the town. So he would be in a desertic place, really. So it is that water in the desert, and suddenly there's this whole crowd around him, thanks to the encounter with one person. So you have the whole movement of these people coming out of town and seeking Jesus, God, in the desert. And so repeating history, as it were, but showing us the way to find God for ourselves. So we're in John 4, the beginning of the Gospel of John, John and Jesus is on his, his way back from Jerusalem. In John 2, we have had the wedding at Cana, but then he went to Jerusalem. And then we had the encounter with Nicodemus in chapter 3. Now, the dialogue with Nicodemus is quite uh, substantial, but this one with the Samaritan woman is even more interesting insofar as there is, it really is a dialogue. You have Jesus says, the Samaritan woman says, whereas with Nicodemus, Nicodemus only says a couple of things, and after that, Jesus goes into a whole teaching mode and Nicodemus doesn't really say anything else. But here really it is 
a dialogue where the woman is brought to ask more and more questions, to realize more and more things about Jesus until she's transformed and she goes out. So this conversation is absolutely priceless. That it is recorded is extraordinary because then who would be the witness? How come St. John would have known anything about it except from Jesus himself or from the woman? But it is possible. What happens is that we have in this single piece of dialogue of Jesus with another person, we have the whole movement of how someone is brought to faith. How someone who is absolutely an outsider, not even Jewish, and an outsider to our own people, is brought to faith and brings others to faith. Suddenly the whole movement, if you want, that, that really is actually the nature of the church of, and of every member of the church. This encounter with Christ that transforms everything. And at the heart of it is that water, which is the, per, the, the, the object of the woman's coming out of town to seek for that water, that material water, and Jesus there offering the living water of the Holy Spirit. So that's the, the whole heart of the gospel, this center. But to break down a little bit of the verses. So verses 4 to 6 is the introduction and the context. So the town of Sishar, so Jesus is in Samaria, so he crosses Samaria rather than going all the way around. Samaria being this, this land which had been invaded where they have had people being left during the Assyrian invasion before the fall of Jerusalem in, in the years 7 and 600. And the people would have been left there, but other people would have come to settle there, pagans. And so Samaria is a mixture of Jews and pagans, but Jews who have severed themselves from the worship in Jerusalem. As we hear from the gospel, the Samaritans would be worshipping at Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. They had set up their own worship and it was a mixture a little bit. There was some of the law of Moses, but there were some other bits and pieces which they had it. And that's why the Jews would not talk to them because they would treat them as pagans. Not only that, but we have the introduction, the context, we have Jesus alone and tired. We see Jesus tired and thirsty. The whole humanity of Christ transpires in it. It's the, the first visible, the first evidence about Jesus that we see is his humanity. Tired and thirsty. And so tired he didn't go into town with the disciples. He stayed by the well, but he had no means to, to take the water from the well. So when the woman comes, he asks her for a drink. But why is the woman alone? And it's at the sixth hour. That's what the, the introduction tells us, this context. It's at the sixth hour, which would be 12 o'clock, the hottest hour of the day. Normally, no one would come out at this time. But this woman comes out alone. Why? Because she's an outcast from her own people. And going out at the well would be a social gathering of which she was excluded or excluded herself, and we understand that from her lifestyle. If she had had five husbands, and the one he, she had was not her husband, she, she was a loose woman. She was a woman that other people wouldn't want to mix with, and so she was alone. And no one would want to talk to her, certainly not in that way. 
And so that's the introduction. And we begin from verses 7 to 15. Jesus opens the conversation. She does not talk to him. He talks to her first. Give me a drink. And that whole chunk finishes with her asking for a drink. Give me some of that water. So we have this reversal. Jesus was thirsty and now it's the woman who asks for a drink. Then from, from verses 16 to 19, Jesus tells her another thing. That's a second chunk. Go and call your husband. So every time Jesus asks her to do something, and then there's this whole disclosure about, I have no husband. And then Jesus reveals to her that he knows her profoundly. And so she comes to realize something about him. So what started with a disclosure of her identity, call your husband, who are you? What is your social standing? Ends up with her discovering his identity. The revelation that Jesus gives about herself you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband, ends up being a revelation as well about himself. She comes to realize who he is because she finds herself known by him. And we know that the one who knows us is God, primarily the one who first knew us even before we were, as it were. His knowledge of us is the source of our existence. He knows us into being. So, this reversal in revelation of identities. And then verses 20 to 26. We end up talking about religion here now. You are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. So here we move very quickly into a very deep conversation about religion. Tell me what's the right thing to do. Our father worships on this mountain. And Jesus will talk about worship. And then end up end up revealing his own identity. I am he, he ego me. The same words as God. I am who am. I am he, I am the Messiah. Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah, which he does mysteriously here, where in the other Gospels, he tends to hide it more. He doesn't want people to tell. But here he has no problem disclosing his own identity to a pagan woman who is also a sinner. But she is looking for him. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. So she's trying to figure out how best to approach God. And she comes to realize, again, another reversal, that God is actually right there. I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed. And then verses 27 to 38, from this whole progressive disclosure where she comes to understand herself and she comes to understand who he is as well, she enters into her mission. This disclosure of identity becomes a disclosure of vocation. She finds her mission. She leaves her jar because she has no more use for it. She's not interested anymore in physical water, even though she must have walked a mile to get there. The woman put down her water jar and hurried back to town to tell people. No one tells her, Luke, you've got to go and be a missionary and you've got to evangelize and you've got to tell everyone. She does it of herself. She understands her vocation from now the, the love that she has encounter, encountered, the acceptance of Jesus that she encountered at the well transforms her to the point that she becomes now a missionary. 
she she was a complete sinner and not even a Jew and she didn't know the true God and now she's a missionary in one conversation. And when she goes off on her mission, then Jesus has this another conversation, another dialogue with his disciples who do most of the talking actually silently. They, they will wonder in their head, what's going on? Why is he talking with a woman? Jesus really teaches them at this point. And he reveals to them his mission, his primary mission, which is to do the will of the Father. Now, remember in St. John's Gospel, we don't have an account of the temptations of Jesus in the desert. But this is very similar to the first temptation. Not that it is a temptation, it's not. But we have this, similarly, we have a disclosure of Jesus's fullness of humanity in his thirst. As he was, after 40 years, 40 days in the desert, he was hungry. And now he was thirsty. He was tired by the well. And he's thirsty. But, he's for, but what comes before his physical thirst is now revealed. The, prior, the priority in his life is revealed because he was more interested in quenching the woman's thirst for God than, than catering for his own. And then he discloses the reality of his mission to his disciple. My food is to do the Father's will. And this matches what the, the words of scripture that he quoted to the devil, man does not live on bread alone. My food is to do the Father's will. And that is both as God is the word of the Father. He does the will of the Father. And as man, in in all his human faculty, he is there to do the will of the Father. My food is to do the will of the Father. This is the first priority in my life. So he reveals his mission. And then he reveals to them their mission. The fields are ready. The harvest is ready. You've got now to reap where you haven't sown. So who has sown this harvest? Of The prophets. All the, the work of the prophets, the, the patriarchs, the kings, the Old Testament, the faithful, the just men of the Old Testament who had received, passed on, proclaimed the word of God. Now, in Jesus, the fullness of that revelation is incarnate in front of them and they can reap the fruit of all these efforts. And the woman was ripe for the mission, was ripe insofar as she has been converted. She has been touched by Jesus' own disclosure of who he is and, and she has been saved insofar as she has been transformed by the love of Jesus for her. And now we have the fruits of that mission. What Jesus has been telling the disciples to do. The fields are ripe for the harvest the woman has done. So what Jesus is talking about to the apostles in some way slightly abstractly when he says, look around, look at the fields, already they are white, ready for the harvest, already the reaper is being paid his wages, already he's bringing in the grain for eternal life. And what is this grain he's talking about? Well, it's all the Samaritans of the town who just come. Many Samaritans of that town that believed in him on the strength of woman's testimony they come, they all come, and now they believe not only because of the woman, but because they have themselves encountered Jesus. And here we see how the woman really has fulfilled her mission, insofar as her mission wasn't just to proclaim 
some great truth that everybody would come to believe, but her mission was to bring them to encounter Jesus, to hear for themselves the word of Jesus, to have for themselves the same experience as she had received, which is available to every human person. So that's the movement of the text. Uh, from a place of great, great loneliness, this desert, this single well with Jesus alone there, to this great gathering of harvest, of people who believe in him. We have a, a superb model of evangelization, and that is perhaps why this gospel is specifically for Lent and specifically used during the catechumenate period for the catechumens to be led to and to have the same encounter with Jesus as the Samaritan woman coming from different faith, coming from no faith, asking for baptism, looking for the living water. And here is the, the things that are the same experience for everyone, the same sort of patterns of evangelization. To evangelize like Jesus, according to that text, we see, first of all, that it is the initiative of Jesus. He, it is initiative insofar as he makes himself present. He's already there when the woman arrives. He's already there. God goes ahead of us. He's ahead of us in every way. He prepares us by his grace. It's only by his grace that we are led to do the things that we do. If we think we have the initiative in doing good things, uh, we're slightly delusional. It is by God's grace. He comes ahead of us, before us, behind us. He surrounds us from all sides. So he's already there at the well and he's the one who speaks first. And it's very important. And what does he say to the woman? What is the opening line? It's not, hello, I am the Messiah. Hello, have you accepted me as your personal savior? No, he takes her as she is, and relates to what she's doing. She's come to get some water. So he says to her, give me a drink. Something simple, something she can actually do. But it's still a challenge. Give me a drink. And it will stretch her. Because simple as it is, it, it's asking of a, a service. It's asking of her to open her heart. It's asking of her to do something for someone else. And that's the opening for God's grace to come and transform us. To stop being completely self-obsessed self and to be able to open oneself to the other. To be surprised by another. And of course, for her, it would, the, the greater challenge would have been because this is an, a Jewish man and normally... Neither would she have any sort of connection and, and reasons to talk to him. So he's talking to her. That's shocking to her. And she could just ignore him or go away. So there is a call from Jesus. There is a call to, to this openness, to this challenge which she takes on. It's something actually that we find in scripture very often. When you think about the call of Abraham, the first time that God actually talks to anyone in history. And it's Genesis 12, 1, 4. God has the complete initiative of this movement as well. 
It's God's initiative, his action. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindreds and your father's house. So again, he's asking someone to do something, to do something on trust, give me a drink, to do something that's feasible. It's within possibilities, but it's very challenging here for Abram to leave everything. But there is a call to action here. And that is very important. Jesus does not first come up with ideas to be believed, but he comes with an action to be done. And as the person obeys, does what God is asking, their hearts and minds are opened to receive more and more and more and more. And that is the way that we function. And, and even in evangelization, inviting someone in might simply be asking them to do something simple that they can do that will open their hearts so that they will be ready to hear something at some point. We have this example not only with Abram, but more challengingly still with Moses, where we really see the manifestation, the initiative of God who shows himself through the burning bush to Moses in Mount Horeb. And again, God attracts Moses on Mount Horeb. Moses comes in to have a look. His curiosity gets the best of him. And then, and then God called him Moses, Moses, initiative. He knows him personally. He knows his name. He's interested in his person, which is the same for the woman, which is the same for Abram. Here I am. Do not come here. Put off your shoes from your feet. Another action. Another first thing to do another immediate response, which is the opening of the heart, the, the, the conditions to be able to lessen, the first obedience, which is always quite simple, but is necessary. And then further on, we have the same with St. Peter in Luke 5, 1, 11. Whether it is the first encounter with St. Peter, we don't know, but it seems to be the first encounter as recounted by St. Luke. And it's the time when... Peter is then Simon, and, and Jesus again turns to him. When he had ceased speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So are these the first words that Jesus said to Simon in Luke? They are. What are they? A call to action, a call to obedience. Before any long discourse, before any explanation, a call to trust. And so as Jesus establishes these relationships of trust and the person responds, and that's what God is always interested in, our response, even if it's ridiculous and minimal, give me a drink, it's not much, but he's interested in it passionately because as we respond, he will give more and more and more as we respond again and again and again. So this dialogue is really the heart of that relationship with God that we are called to have. And it is person-centered. This is why this dialogue is so precious, because it really is the longest piece of dialogue that we have between Jesus and another single person. And we can see how Jesus is passionately interested in the person. It, and in the same way, he's passionately interested in, in each one of us. How unbelievable that may seem it is true. It is the reality. And the Samaritan woman is this example. No one would be interested in her. 
makes it for to get something out of her. No one would be interested in her as a person. Certainly, that's why she would be drawing water alone in the middle of the day. She would be no one, she would be nobody, she would be despised. But Jesus is interested in her. And that this longest piece of dialogue be recorded in Scripture with a total nobody, that even for the Jews would be a nobody, is extraordinary. That the incarnate Son of God chose to talk to that woman. And it's the same dawning realization we all have to make about ourselves, that God would wish to talk to me, to enter into a dialogue with me. He has is passionately interested in me. In fact, the Catechism puts it in that way. It's one of the most beautiful quotes from the Catechism, and it's about prayer. Number 2560 on prayer. If you knew the gift of God, the wonder of prayer is revealed beside the well where we come seeking water. There Christ comes to meet every human being. It is he who first seeks us, and asks us for a drink. Jesus thirsts. His asking arises from the depth of God's desire for us. Whether we realize it or not, prayer is the encounter of God's thirst with ours. God thirsts that we may thirst for him. That's for every human person. No one is excluded from that. God is passionately interested in everyone, desires everyone's response. So now let's go back to the way that Jesus evangelizes. His desire for us awakens our desire in us. And we can see from what he says how he's leading the woman to realize more and more and to ask more and more, give me that water, you are a prophet. And then finally she's ready to hear that he is the Messiah, but he leads her progressively to that point where she is really ready to hear it and to understand it. She d he doesn't start with that. So that proclamation is into it, but it is within that form of dialogue. And, and so we see that transformation, that transformation of one human person through dialogue, and it's a wonderful treasure that we have in that gospel of the Samaritan woman because the transformations that we have in the gospel, as far as human persons are concerned, are often linked with miracles, of course. Restoring sight, and we will have the, the man born blind next week. Restoring sight, raising Lazarus from the dead, we have the transformation of, of Mary and Martha and, and this whole call to faith. The transformation of Bartimaeus who leaps for joy. Those transformation of a human person where there is no physical sign of healing, such as Zacchaeus, who's also asked to do something quite simple and yet challenging, come down, I need to stay at your house today, another way in which Jesus has the initiative, another way in which Jesus knows his name mysteriously where no one had told him who Zacchaeus was. But here that transformation we see happening literally in front of our eyes through that dialogue where, where she opens herself finally to receive the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah 
And from that, he immediately goes to proclaim it and to say to others, look what he has done for me. He has told me everything I have done. And that is transformative. That is, she has been touched by the Savior. So she was completely indifferent, supposedly, because she had no interest in the Jewish religion, certainly, and in, you know, in the Jewish God, to disciple insofar as she's listening intently to Jesus and, and trusting him, believing him, and then to missionary in one dialogue. So that's something for us to take on and to learn, not so much as a pattern for what we do with others, but as a pattern for us of receiving the gospel. How am I evangelized? Because evangelization doesn't stop with baptism. It doesn't stop once we've become sort of Christian. And evangelization is the whole process of, of being gospelized, of the, of the gospel penetrating and transforming us. And we still have a long way to go, I would say, well, certainly I do, before I reach the level of the Samaritan woman, where I just burst and, and run to town and tell everyone, look what she's done to me. I'm not yet there. I'm not yet fully transformed by his love. So how am I being evangelized? Am I able, first of all, to respond to Jesus in the way that the Samaritan woman has responded immediately in the way that Abraham and Moses and Peter have responded? And where am I failing to transition from indifference to disciple and from disciple to missionary? And this is where that Samaritan woman can teach us an awful lot during this Lent. But we have a full revelation of God, of course, in this gospel. Jesus is the giver of God's gift. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is speaking to you. And so this gospel is fully Trinitarian. The gift of God. What is the gift of God? It's the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Father and the Son. He proceeds from the Father and the Son and is given, is poured out. That's in the nature of the Holy Spirit, the love of the Father and the Son to be poured out, not only between Father and Son, but for us. That's his action in the world. He comes to be poured out. That water is definitely a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's in, in the Catechism 694. The symbolism of water signifies the Holy Spirit's action in baptisms, since after the invocation of the Holy Spirit, it becomes the efficacious sacramental sign of new birth. As by one Spirit we were all baptized, so we are also made to drink of one Spirit. Thus, the Spirit is also personally the living water welling up from Christ crucified as its source and welling up in us to eternal life. Now, the, um, the gift is the Holy Spirit. The giver, well, it proceeds from the Father and the Son. If you knew the gift of God and who it is, but it's to know the gift and who it is, who it is we're speaking to you is the Word of God. And the Word is the truth, the Logos, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. So we have this manifestation of the word and the spirit, truth and love, the, the, the gift and the giver of the gift, so that the Father can be adored in spirit and truth through the Son and the Holy Spirit. The gift, the sending into the world of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
is how the Father recon reconciles the whole world to himself and how he opens his own being, God opens his own being through the sending of the Son and the Holy Spirit to humanity. And that gift of the, Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are called to receive each of us personally. That begins at baptism through the church. Each of us is called to be a temple of God. So it is an absolutely Trinitarian gospel. And on top of that, we see how God does not simply come to tell us who he is and it comes to tell us, look, this is now the, the new directives of how you should live and spirit and truth and therefore leave your humanity behind, leave everything that drags you down to earth behind and just come elevate yourself to me spiritually in spirit and truth. No, God wants us as we are, he's interested in the whole of us. He's interested in everything that we are. And we see that God has created us. How has God created us? Through his word, God said, and through his breath. When God speaks, the breath and the word are inseparable, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Each one of us has been uniquely created. And so everything that is for humanity is intended by God and is meant to be redeemed by God, and is meant to live eternally. And that's why we believe strongly in the resurrection of the body. Everything that we are matters to God. We're not, he's not asking us to leave anything of what we are behind. What he's asking us to leave behind is sin, but nothing of what makes us what and who we are. And so in that dialogue with the Samaritan woman, we can see how Jesus cares for every aspect of her humanity, her physical needs with the water. Give me that water so that I don't have to go there anymore. It, we'd start with a very, very physical, give me something to drink. God comes to meet us in our physicality. That's the whole point of the incarnation. He's interested in our physicality. He's interested in us as human beings, body and soul, not just as souls. And that's where he begins, because that's what is more tangible and most pressing in some way. It might not be the priority. Man does not live on bread alone, but it's pretty important. And Jesus does not dismiss it. And then he heals not only her physical dimension, but her relational dimension. Go and call your husband. The human person is not meant to be alone. We're not individual units living alongside each other. We live together. And, and what we do with others has enormous consequence. And Jesus heals that. Call and call your husband. He heals this obvious problem that she has here because suddenly she's not running in order to find another man into town. She's running in order to bring everyone to Jesus who has been able to heal her of that huge gap in her heart and in her being, that huge wound that she has been carrying it, that great, great need for love that she has experienced and never been able to fill. So the relation, and they are as important to Jesus as well. Again, he's not dismissing that. And he's taking her as she is. He's not saying, well, now that you've told me you had five husbands, go off because I'm not interested in you anymore. You're, you're such a wretched sinner. 
I have no time for you. On the contrary, that's who we came for. And she represents the whole of humanity in that. And then he's interested in her knowing him. The reason we have a brain is to know God, is to know the truth. And God is the truth. And it will never stop. We will never stop thirsting for knowledge. And so Jesus does engage in a dialogue with her about what matters most, the truth. When she asks, she's curious about it. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say it's in Jerusalem we need to worship. And he explains things to her. Salvation comes from the Jew. The God's revelation has been transmitted through the Jewish people, but now it's open to everyone. So it comes through the Jews, meaning it's now available. It's now on offer. So, yes, we can engage with our reason, with everything that has been revealed to us by God. Nothing will, we have nothing to fear in questioning. We have nothing to fear that we will find that suddenly the truth of revelation and the truth of science will contradict each other. On the contrary, God is the origin of all truth. And through our understanding, we are able to enter into that truly divine dimension of truth. And finally, he heals and fulfills her spiritual needs. When the Messiah comes, he will reveal us all things. I am he. That's the completion. So the human, the whole of the human person has been finding a finality in Jesus, has been finding a vocation in Jesus. Finally, we find out who we are and what we're made for. And that gives her then this, this, you know, security, this safety in knowing who she is, in finding healing in Jesus that sends her off to bring others to receive that same gift. And finally, we see that she represents the whole church, that Samaritan woman. Yes, Jesus is interested in each person, absolutely, but also in humanity as a whole. And we are made to be in communion with each other. And that's what we see in that great missionary movement of the woman. She can see, she could have gone off and say, well, I have found this great treasure. Now I have Jesus and he told me everything I need to know. And this will be, you know, I've had, I've been so beaten up by life. This will be my personal treasure and identity and my own little sort of thing. And I won't share it with everyone. But immediately, she didn't even have to tell her, go and tell everyone. She just went off and brought her, because she understood it wasn't just for her, it was for everyone. Every human person is made for the revelation and the love, the salvation that comes from Christ. Every person can find a home in Christ. And in that sense, she is exactly like the church. The church of the Gentiles, like the Samaritan, so having not received the revelation from the beginning, but having received salvation from the Jews, as it were, now, and with the pagan lifestyle and sin, very similar to that woman, now coming to faith in Jesus, having received the truth I am he and the grace, that living water of the Holy Spirit, necessary to, to extend that salvation to the world, to transmit that salvation to others through her joyful witness 
He told me everything I have done. And the church is none of, nothing else than a, a gathering of people through time and space who have been proclaiming to others, he told me everything. I have, I have found the Messiah. I have found God. God is interested in us. God has come down to us. He has been sitting down, waiting for us in a desert that we have created through our sin, offering us something we could never get for ourselves. And... And, and so we see how baptism is really this entrance into that life of God that we begin to receive. And of course, what the Samaritan woman encapsulates in, in one sort of instantaneous conversation is the experience of the church as a whole through 2000 years, but also the experience of each Christian. And it might be before we come again, as I said, to the point of the Samaritan woman just running out to town, it might take a few years for some of us. Uh, before we come to that level of of intimacy with Jesus, of being evangelized by Jesus. But this is the work that he does in us. And as he does his work in us, as we respond to him, when he asks us, when, as we obey his biddings, go, you know, um, give me a drink. As we respond to his thirst, we are healed in every aspect of our being. We are healed of our physical, of our emotional, of our intellectual needs. Not that they disappear, but they are redeemed and they are reoriented towards the one who is our finality, is our fulfillment and gives everything that we need and more because he gives us everything that he is.